All right, well, today we continue our series, Family in the Roaring Twenties, talking about family life and family dynamics and, and how we get better as Jesus followers in the context of our own families here in the Roaring Twenty Twenties. And we've said that over the last 100 years, family reality has changed quite a bit, but our family ideal that we're given from God through the New Testament actually hasn't changed much at all, that our, that our ideal hasn't changed much at all. So we said we find ourselves living in a tension between the real and the ideal, that God has a plan and an ideal for your family because he is wise and because he knows what's best for you and wants what's best for you, because he loves you. He has a standard and an ideal for our families because he loves us. And he has a grace that is so abundant for our families that he knows we will fall short. He knows we so often fall short. And so he has grace, an abundance of grace for our families because he loves us. And as our, he wants us to know him as our gracious and our compassionate heavenly father. So we strive toward the ideal. This is where we landed last week. We don't abandon the ideal and we don't just embrace the real and we don't load people up with a guilt of, about, their, about their reality. We strive toward the ideal while accepting and embracing God's grace for our daily reality. That's how we approach family in the roaring 20s. Now, moving into the new content today, it's possible that over the last 100 years, there has been no greater shift in culture and in family dynamics than in the way that we communicate with each other. Now, if you lived 100 years ago, how did you communicate with your family? face to face. Like if you needed to say something to a family member, if you need, if, if a husband needed to say something to a wife, wife needed to say something to a husband, parents needed to say something to their kids, kids needed to say something to their parents, it happened face to face. I mean, like, te like telephones were starting to become a little bit more common within the house, but it, it wasn't a large percentage of houses that had telephones in the house. If you needed to say something to a family member, it happened face to face. Face, face to face. That was replaced in the 30s by this, by this bad boy. By this bad boy. I'm going to put it on the screen right now. This was the primary phone design for over 50 years. By the way, if you grew up with one of these in your house, would you just like this video right now or comment or put a picture in the comments to let us know the phone that you grew up with in, in your house? In the 60s and 70s, these started to spread out throughout the house, but before that point in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, even most of the 60s, there was generally one phone in the living room, in the kitchen, the whole family shared it. It was a central hub. And so you had to, so, so the, if communication was gonna happen outside the home, you know, it might be on the phone, but still communication tended to happen face-to-face -face within the family. In the, in the late 60s and 70s, uh, sometimes these started to move around the house and, and children and parents would actually have a phone line in their bedroom. It would be the same number. It wasn't a different number, but kids could have a little bit more privacy in their conversations. Parents could have a little bit more privacy in their conversations. A mom standing in the kitchen could buzz into their kid's, lit, you know, their kid's bedroom to let them know that, that dinner was ready or that they needed to come down so they could have a conversation. A little bit, little bit of a, of a dy dynamic shift there. And finally, that was replaced in the 80s and the early 90s by this fine piece of, of equipment you eat your heart out, Zach Morris. That's right. This is the cordless phone. And more specifically, this is the cordless phone and answering machine. 
This is the phone that I remember growing up with, the cordless phone and answering machine. No more cords keeping us bound and keeping us tethered to one location. Finally, we can walk around a house having a conversation, flailing our arms about as we, as we have our conversation just the way God intended, right? And not only could we move around while we had conversations, these get, got put into more and more kids' rooms. There was more and more multiple phone lines in the same house. There was also the ability finally to call and leave a message, to call someone not knowing whether or not they would be home. And if they weren't home, you could still leave a message for them. Meaning if also, if you were a kid and you were at a parent's at, at a friend's house and you knew your parents weren't home, you could still call your house, leave a message for mom and dad so that they would get it when they got home. This was a magical time. This was a massive advancement in the ability to communicate in different ways, regardless of where you were. Oh, and don't forget when the late 90s and maybe some of the mid 90s, depending on where you lived. If you grew up in a bigger city that was more focused on technology. For me, where I grew up in a small town, this was the late 90s. This was like high school. This is, this is like this is like 97, 98. Don't forget the amazing sound of communication that this was from the 1990s. Yes, yes. Instant message. This is the sound of dial-up internet, baby. This is the sound of getting online. And some of you who are younger, you have no idea what that sound was. You're like, wait, you had to get on, like you didn't just turn on your computer and it was automatically connected to Wi-Fi. And in the nineties, we would say to you, what is Wi-Fi? Like we didn't like, we had, we, like we had to dial up the internet. We couldn't call out from the house because you were dialing up the internet and that's where instant messaging began and it was amazing you could you could send messages to someone across the interweb it was phenomenal and then in the 2000s phones looked like this in the early 2000s phones looked like this right it was early cell phones everyone in the family started to have their own it was taking advantage of unlimited nights and weekends and you had a limited number of text messages this is when people started to choose cell phones over landlines in fact this makes me feel old to say this but I was 22 years old when I got my first cell phone. When I got my first cell phone, I was 22 years old and I was getting my first apartment with a bunch of guys that I went to college with. And they, when we were getting the apartment, they said, hey, we're not gonna get a landline. All of us have cell phones, so we're just gonna use our cell phones. And I thought, I should probably get me one of those because I don't have one, but we're not gonna, apparently gonna have a landline, so I better get me a cell phone. So I got myself a nice little blue Samsung clamshell. It had a, a, a 0.7 megapixel phone on, or camera on it. It was amazing, high class technology there. It was, in, and then in then the late 2000s, phones started to get really smart when the, when the iPhone and some of the Android phones started to come out in the 2010s, we actually asked this question, like, do people even call anymore? No, no one calls anymore. People just text, right? We don't call, we text. In the late 2010s, we don't even text anymore. We send emojis and memojis and GIFs and memes. And we're going actually backwards in communication ability right now. We're basically about to start sending ourselves like hieroglyphics, like it's gonna be amazing. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but late in, in, in 2020, 
way, I actually changed my hairstyle a little bit because of memojis, because of animojis. Um, and, and some of you, by the way, you didn't even notice. It really hurts my feelings. But I finally got a phone that could do the memoji. And, and I handed my phone to Jalen. I said, why don't you, like, just, you, you create one for me. Like, let me know how it looks. I'll see if it's accurate. And if it's accurate, you know, somewhat accurate, I'll go with it. And after, after her working on it for about 20 minutes, she kind of got, like, this look on her face. And I said, what's, what's going on over there? She said, well, I can't really complete it because, Chris, your hair, like, your hairstyle, which, by the way, was a faux hawk that had served me well from the year of our Lord, 1999. The faux, she said, the faux hawk isn't actually a hairstyle option for the, for the Memoji. Like, your hair isn't an option. And I thought, okay, well, well, I guess I have a choice here. I can have a hair on my Memoji that doesn't look anything like me, or I could change my hairstyle in real life so that my hairstyle in real life could match a Memoji. And so, as a 37-year-old adult, that's what I did. I decided to change my hairstyle because maybe, just maybe, if the faux hawk isn't even an option anymore, maybe it's that out of style. So anyway, so like, so that's that's how we communicate in, in, in life. Now, in the 2020s, how does family communicate? We have moms who create fake social media profiles to track their children, children's activity, and find out the real plan, not the plan that they were told about. Like to find, like they create fake social media profiles to track their children because no one actually trusts their children and husbands and wives who communicate by sharing funny Instagram reels. Like this is how we communicate now in the context of family. And so again, we could say the, the way we communicate over the last hundred years has changed a great deal. The way we communicate within the world, especially with the family has changed dramatically. With that being said, the words we use still matter a great deal. And, it, and you could say this, because of how little we actually communicate, the words we use matter more than ever. Because of how little we actually communicate within the context of family, because of how little we actually communicate, the words we use mean more than ever. They matter more than ever. Now, as we talk about ideal and real, it's possible that there's nothing else in scripture where this dynamic is so clearly stated as when it comes to how we use our words in relationship with one another. Because scripture gives some incredibly clear pictures of the reality of our words and the way we often try to communicate with each other. And this matters in every relationship, but boy, obey, oh boy, does this matter in the context of family relationships. Relationships. So one of these passages comes to us from James, and James was the brother of Jesus who didn't follow Jesus before his death and resurrection, but became a follower of his brother after he saw his brother die and rise from the dead. James wrote a letter that we have been studying in our in our Thursday Zoom lunch stu lunch study group, um, which has been a lot of fun. And James, who grew up with Jesus, who grew up with the ideal who grew up with the ideal, he had this to say about our words. James chapter three, starting in verse six, he said, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of, of life on fire, and is in itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I mean, like you listen to the, those, the words that James uses to describe the tongue, to describe our words, to describe the way that we talk. And I mean, just listen to, listen to these words. It's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. Our words are a stain 
Our tongue is untamable. Our words are evil. And our words are full of deadly poison. Which if you read that list, you almost go, hey, James, why don't you let us know how you really feel about the tongue? Let us know how you really feel about our words. Like, why don't you, like, stop holding back. Like, like stop, stop holding back. Because this is strong language. To use the language that we sometimes use in our, in our Zoom group, this is spicy language. This is strong, spicy language. But let me ask you a question. While this is strong, is there anything in there that's not reality? No. This is reality. This is the reality that we all live with. Every one of us have seen the power of words to destroy relationships, to hurt people, or that have hurt us. Every one of us have said things to people that we love and people we care about that we wish we could take back, but once they're out there, they're out there. We all know there have been times as husbands and wives where we have said words to the person that we once took vows to love and to cherish where the words that we said destroyed them. Every parent listening or watching knows there are moments as parents where the words that we use directed toward children that we prayed to bring into the world have burnt them. We all know the power of our words. And we also know that that's never our intention, right? That's never our intention. Our, never our hope with how we use our words. It's never how we hope to use our words. We hope our words will build up our loved ones. We hope they'll inspire our loved ones. We hope our words will convince our children to make good choices. But simultaneously, we want to win arguments. We want to prove we're right. We all want to call the shots. We want to get our way. We want our kids to know who's in charge. And so our words end up carrying a lot of mixed motives with us. Our words end up carrying a lot of mixed motives. And this is why Solomon wrote what he wrote in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Here's what he wrote in Proverbs 18. He said, the tongue can bring death or life. Death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. will reap the consequences. Now that's real. That's real. That's reality. And all of us know it. All of us know it. All of us have experienced it. All of us live daily with the dual reality that our words can bring life and we want them to bring life, but so often they end up bringing death. And it's into that reality, it's into that reality that the New Testament, that the Apostle Paul gives us an ideal. An ideal that if I'm, like, it's, it's really ideal. I mean, this is an ideal that, frankly, I am so far from reaching myself that I want to do exactly what we talked about in the first week of this series where we abandon the ideal because it seems so out of reach, it seems so un, un, unrealistic, it seems so undoable that we almost, that I would just rather ignore this because I don't feel like I'm, up to the, like, 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 I don't feel worthy to talk about this ideal, but this is the ideal that we're given in the New Testament about how we would use our words. And so for, it, for the sake of holding up an ideal while having grace for our real, let's talk about the ideal. Let's read the ideal from Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse 29. This is, a, this is the ideal that if we just put this in practice for one week of our lives, this would change everything about our family. Like if, if, if you actually just did this or strive toward this for one week, I guarantee this would improve your family relationships because this is such a beautiful ideal in Ephesians 4, 29. It says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now again, that's like a yikes high standard, right? 
This verse reminds me of two things my dad used to say to me. He used to say, just because a thought comes into your head doesn't mean it needs to come out of your mouth. And he also used to say, it's okay to enjoy a thought in your head. We don't all need to join in your enjoyment. And I remember like, like when I remember so often, like after my dad would say this, I would think, oh, haha, I'm going to show them. I'm going to enjoy something in my head in such an annoying way that there's that they'll come begging back for my comedic gold. Like they're like, they're like I'll be so annoying while I enjoy it in my head that they'll be wishing for the day that they actually got to hear it and enjoy it with me. And so I remember one night sitting at the dinner table, I thought of something that was particular that I thought was particularly funny, and my dad had kind of been on this kick of like, you know, just you know, it's okay to enjoy things in your head. And so I broke out into this like ridiculously annoying laughter at the at the dinner table. And my dad goes, what's so, what's so funny? And I said, oh, nothing, dad. I'm just enjoying it in my head. Ha, ha, ha. Just like you want me to, dad. <laughs> super, super annoying. And what I thought was, I'm being so annoying right now that they're going to want me to come crawling back. Like they're going to be- they're going to come crawling back to beg me to come back and, and bestow upon them my comedic gold. And you know what happened? They just went, cool. And all I could think in that moment was, I'm being so annoying right now. How annoying did they think my words were before that this is an improvement? Like, that's what I remember thinking. Like, oh no, I was being so annoying before that this is better than that. And they're willing to let this go. Like, this is crazy. Anyway, here's the thing. This is the ideal that Paul holds up. That Paul holds up. Let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth. This is a high standard, right? Do not let any any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Only let out of your mouth what is helpful and what builds others up according to their needs, not your needs, so that your world would be a benefit to them, not to you. I mean, talk about a high unrealistic ideal for a moment, right? Like this is this is such like wow, high ideal this is, a, this is a high standard for our words, for the way we talk to each other. This is so ideal that it seems completely, completely unrealistic. You want to know what makes that even worse? This isn't the whole ideal. This isn't the whole passage. I started, I did the Tarantino v- version there where we zoom in on one part just to let you know how, like, how bad it sounds at the start. So then we're gonna, now we're going to zoom out to show you the whole passage and it gets harder. It gets more ideal. It gets more idealistic. It gets more unrealistic. Here's what Paul says in the whole passage, starting in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You want the ideal? You want to know what the ideal is from Scripture? You want to know the New Testament ideal about how we're supposed to use our words? How we use our words in such a way that it's not a fire and full of deadly poison, but can actually build people up and can actually be the words and use our words in a way that accomplishes what we actually want to accomplish with our words? Here's the ideal. You speak only what is true. 
You speak only what is true. You speak no unwholesome words. You speak only what is helpful for building others up. No bitter or angry or slanderous words. You speak only what is kind, compassionate, and gracious. Let me just unpack that a little bit. Let me give you the first one. Speak only what is true. See, in the context of family, there is a way where you can find a way to say anything that's true, and you can say it in a loving and a gracious way. We all fall short on that, but you can find a way to say anything that's true in a gracious and a loving way. But let me just say why I think this is so important. So many of us, we think something is true until it comes out of our mouths. And so some of us, we need to do a better job of evaluating whether it's true before it comes out of our mouths. And we need to understand that if it's only true in your head, it doesn't actually need to be said. If it's only true in your head, it doesn't actually need to be said. So for those of us who have a tendency to say something out loud that we, that in our head, we're like, oh, this is going to get them. This is going to win the argument because this is true. And then we say it, we go, oh, that's not even true. Oh, that's just like, that's not, it doesn't even matter. We need to do a better job of understanding we only speak what is true. The second one, no unwholesome words, sarcasm, words that tear someone down. Here's the, here's the ultimate idea behind unwholesome words. Unwholesome words is words that would make someone sick. If your words on the other side of it make someone sick, that means your words are a little more poisonous than they are productive. Are they a little more poisonous than they are productive? And maybe we should evaluate, are the words that we're saying, are they wholesome? Do I let a lot of sarcasm out, but I don't actually speak the truth in love as much as I should? Am I using words that tear someone down instead of build someone up? Are my words continuously tearing people down and never building people up? If that's the case, maybe we need to evaluate the way we use our words. Speak only what is helpful for building others up. Does it actually help them or do you just feel better for having said it? Let's be honest, especially in the context of family. There's so often, we just feel better for having gotten it off of our chest, right? We just feel better for having said it. And some of us need to evaluate, are, are my words actually helping them or are they just helping me feel better? Because if my words are just helping me feel better and they're not helping them, I am not striving toward an ideal that God has held up for my words no bitter, angry, slanderous words. We don't speak from hurt and we don't speak in order to hurt. We don't speak from hurt. So if we're speaking from hurt, we're speaking from our anger. We're speaking from our bitterness. We don't speak from our hurt. If you've been hurt, we don't take our words from the source of hurt. We take our words from the source of life, our heavenly father. We don't take our words from our hurt, from our bitterness or from our anger. And we also don't speak words in order to hurt. If we know something is going to be hurtful, we can choose not to say it. And then the final, we speak only what is kind, compassionate, and gracious. In other words, we speak forgiveness. We speak life. We speak kindness. You think we, we speak what is kind. We speak what is gracious. We speak forgiveness. We speak with compassion. We speak with understanding. That's how we speak. That's the ideal that God has told us. Now, how do you like that as an ideal? I mean, when you think about that, it seems like, wait, wait, wait. If I follow that ideal, if I strive for that ideal, do you know how many words that I normally say in the context of a week that I'm just not going to be able to say? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do because I've tried to take the, a challenge to, say, to do this for a week. And I know there's a lot of things that you don't say. 
But I also know that at the end of a week like that, relationships are better. Relationships are stronger. You haven't used your words to tear someone down. You haven't used your words in a way that hurts other people. You haven't used your words in, in a way that makes someone else sick. You've actually used your words to help other people, not just to bring them down or to make fun of them. Like this is, this is what we do. This is an ideal. This is, this is an ideal. Now, how do you, how do you, how do you like that? I don't, I don't know how we like that. Like this is God's standard for how we're supposed to use our words and most of us don't measure up. I know I rarely measure up. I know even in the midst of my the limited context of my four person, two adult and two kid two little kids family, I fall way 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 too way short of that standard way too often. But it's still the ideal and it's still the thing that we should strive for. And so in the context of family, I just want to take a little bit of time today to talk to husbands, to wives, to parents to dads, to moms, to children, about the way we use our words. And I wanted to give a little, some, some visual examples of what our words actually look like in the context of family. See, husbands, your words to your wife are massive. Your words to your wife, the best way, I think, to describe the way we often use our words are as a hammer. We, we, as guys, let's just be honest, we like hammers. We like swinging hammers. It's awesome. It's fun. And we think, well, I'm going to use my, my words as a hammer, but a hammer is good and a hammer is productive and you can build out a house and you can frame a house and you can do a lot of good stuff with a, with a hammer. But let's be honest, husbands, when it comes to our wives, we have a tendency to not use our words in a way that build them up and, and, and are building something, but we have a tendency to want to drop the hammer, right? We want to drop the hammer to win the argument, to get our way, to get our thing, to eat where we want to eat, to eat what we want to eat, to, to make sure that what we want happens. We want to drop the hammer to win the argument. And can I say, husbands, if the tool in your toolbox is a hammer, use it to build. Don't drop the hammer. If you have a tendency to drop the hammer to get your way, it's time to put down the hammer. It's time to put down the hammer and find a new tool in your toolbox. Or it's time to only pick up the hammer when you can build your wife, when you can build her up, when you can encourage her, when you can speak life to her, when you can bring hope on a day that's been difficult for her, when you can use it well to actually build your wife up, you pick up the hammer, but you don't pick it up so that you can drop it. We put down the hammer. Let me talk to wives. See, your words to your husband are incredibly important. And you think, wait, I can't even really see what he picked up. I just picked up a needle. And see, here's the thing. What, what, what husbands do is we want to smash the hammer and, you know, drop the hammer and we don't you know, care what mess it caused. It's big. It's, you know, all this kind of stuff. The needle, I say the, a, a wife's words to a husband are a needle because a wife looks at a needle like this, ah, that's, an in, that's a needle to inflate. Ah, a needle can be used to inflate. And I'm going to build my husband up with this needle. But here's what, we, what so often happens. I was talking to a friend a, a, a while back. And he said, it's crazy. I, I love my wife and I know my wife loves me. But she has this ability to find the very weak, like whatever I'm feeling insecure about on any given day, she can find that spot and poke at it and scratch at it until I just end up feeling like a complete loser. I feel so deflated. And that word deflated is the word that I would use in response to this needle. Wives, if you find yourself often using your words in a way that deflates your husband, 
you need to be willing to put down the needle, to put down the needle, to find a better tool, to find a way to speak to your husband that doesn't leave him feeling completely deflated. Now, kids and teenagers or, 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 or 20-year-olds or people who are adults who have not yet begun to build their own family in, the, in response to how we talk to our, and how you talk to your parents as children to parents. Again, this can be from 5 to 25 to 35. That, that a relationship from a child to a parent never really, really stops. You're still always called to honor and to, and to, to, to honor your, your parents. And you can always choose honoring words. See, the words that we often use as, as children and teenagers with our parents, the words end up actually kind of feeling a little bit more like toothpaste. See, often we say things out of our feelings, we say things out of emotions, we say things out of a momentary, a momentary thing, but once the, once the words are said, they're out there, and they, were, they actually work like a tube of toothpaste, that once you squeeze the, t- the toothpaste out of this tube, there is no way to put it back. When a, child says, when a child says words like, I hate you, to a parent, when it says, you're the worst, you never, like, you don't care about me at all, all of these words that we, that we feel in a moment, but we know to be untrue, we can't just put them back once they're out there. And so if we have a tendency, if you have a tendency as a child to, a, you know, speaking to a parent, however old you are, if you have a tendency to feel something and it comes out, whether or not it's true, it might be time to, to do a little more evaluating before we squeeze the tube, before we let the toothpaste out. Is this something that I actually want to have said? Is this something that I want to feel in a moment and become a part of the, the permanent record? Because I do love my parents and I know my parents love me and I, and I want to honor them and I know they care about me. I know they want what's best for me. I just felt angry in a moment, so I let a whole bunch of stuff out. It's okay to stop squeezing the tube. And then to dads, to dads out there, let me just let you in on something that I hope you, I hope you realize. If you're a dad, I hope you realize this already. If you don't, hopefully you can understand this today. Dads, your words to your kids weigh a ton. Your words to your kids weigh a ton. Now, this weight doesn't weigh a ton, but to a small child, this weight would weigh a ton. This weight would weigh a ton. They matter. The good words matter. The bad words matter. You choose, what you choose to tell your kids puts a weight on your kids. It, it, they end up carrying something because of what you choose to tell your kids. You'll either load your kid up with words that lift them up or you'll, weigh, or you'll crush them under a heavy weight of negativity. And while your words are momentarily are momentary, they stick long-term. And so dads, what are the words that you're putting on your children? Will they lift them up like a balloon or will they weigh them down like a weight of negativity? You get to choose that. You get to choose that. But we need to choose intentionally the words we place on our children. And moms, I'm just going to be honest, I don't have a cool visual aid for you because there's not, not really a way to visualize what I'm about to say. But moms, the words that you use become the internal voice that your kids will carry into their teenage years, into their adult years. Your words become the voice in their head. Choose wisely. 
choose wisely. If your words are constant negativity, constant you'll never measure up, constant never good enough, constant like, well, there's a really nice try, but it wasn't really everything we were hoping for. If it was all of that, that is what they will carry into their into their adulthood years, and it will be shaped by, by you. You also have the, the, the opportunity to speak life and positivity and encouragement and let that be the voice that they carry into their adulthood. You have the choice of what voice your, your children will carry with them because your words will form the voice. So with that being said, let me read Paul's words again. Let me read Paul's words one more time slowly. And as you're listening, can we maybe allow the words to simply absorb into our hearts and into our minds? He said, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Here's your ideal. I'll speak only what is true. I'll use no unwholesome words. I'll speak only what is helpful for building others up. I'll use no bitter, angry, or slanderous words. And I'll speak only what is kind, compassionate, and gracious. Now, I said earlier, if we each just put this into practice and decided to strive toward this ideal for one week, this could change everything. And I said that because it can it's an ideal that can improve our real. It's an ideal that can improve our real. So here's your challenge this week. What if you decided that this week we're going to strive for the ideal, that you're going to strive for the ideal in your family relationships, in your relationships as, a hus- as, as husbands and wives, in your relationships as parents and children? What if you decided this week we're going to strive for the ideal. This week, we're going to only speak what is true. We're going to speak in, we're not going to speak any unwholesome words. We're going to speak what is helpful for building others up. We're going to only, we're we're not, we're going to refuse to use bitter or angry or slanderous words. We'll only speak what is kind and compassionate and gracious. And and, and we're going to strive towards that, that ideal. I guarantee at the end of this week, it, you will feel tired, but you will feel like your relationships have gotten better because it's an ideal that can improve our real. And no, you're not going to get it perfect. None of us is going to get it perfect. You're not going to get it perfect for a week. You're not going to get it perfect for an entire day, but you're going to get better. You're going to get better. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to strive. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, this is how your family comes roaring back in the 2020s. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your wisdom that we've just read. Thank you for the ideal. Thank you that you also acknowledge the real that you acknowledge our reality in in your word of of how we often use our words. And God, today I simply, I thank you for your ideal. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you that there is a better way. And God, thank you that even though we so often fall short of it and so often I fall short of it, God, thank you that you do point to the better way. You have given us a better way. And so God, I simply pray that this week we would have the courage to choose the better 
way. Help us to use our words to build others up. Help us to avoid any untruth, but to be people who speak truth in love. Help us to be people who, who, re, who refuse to use our words in ways that tear other people down. Help us to be people who choose to use our words to build people up. Help us to not speak from our hurt or speak in, in order to hurt other people. And God, help us to speak what is kind and compassionate and gracious. Help us to follow Jesus' example. Help us to strive toward the ideal while experiencing your grace for our reality. And God, as we do this, would you use our would you use this moment? Would you use these moments? Would you use this week to improve everything about our family relationships as we learn to speak and communicate in ways that build each other up in love? Help us to do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.